What will you be doing this time tomorrow? It's 20 past 11. What will you be doing? And how do you feel about it? Okay, a few people have a look of mild anxiety. One or two are verging into panic. One person is about to assume the fetal position, start rocking in the corner. Those who are retired are smiling serenely, perhaps with a hint of smugness. Because, of course, this time tomorrow, most of us will be doing some kind of work. Now, an important caveat here, work takes many forms. It may be going out to a job that pays you some money, or it may be studying, or it may be running a home, and that may involve raising children. But that's all work. And believe me, the hardest part of all is the running a home and raising children. Now, earlier this year, a thread went round on, on one of the social media outlets, which simply said, five jobs I've had. And people were just putting down five jobs that they'd had in their life. And it was great fun to find out what weird and wonderful work people have done over the course of their lives. So to start off today, I want to share my work history with you. Schoolboy, by the way, this is in order. Schoolboy, dog walker, paperboy, shop assistant, gardener, industrial temp, putting labels on bars of soap, theme park ride operator at Chessington World of Adventures, civil servant, student, warehouse porter, bookseller, telephone sales executive, marketer, headhunter, seminary student, teaching assistant, pastor. I wonder what yours would look like. As we think about our work and think about the things we've done, you immediately see that it can range from absorbing interest to absolute grinding boredom. And that's been most of the jobs I've had. What are we supposed to think about those many hours that fill our lives from Monday to Saturday? What does the Bible say about work? Sometimes churches can act as if the middle of the week barely exists. Pastors, guys who are in my line of work, can tend to think only about the church and its meetings because that's their world. Yet the church is its people and most of the people spend most of their time doing something useful. How are we supposed to view our work? Does God care about it? Or is it a necessary evil that fills the gap between the weekends? Answer, the Bible has a great deal to say about our work. Work matters to God. Now another error that earnest Christians sometimes make is to think that the only work that really matters is what's called ministry. Ministry, by this people mean pastors, church planters like Pete, church staff, evangelists, missionaries and the like. And so what happens is this starts to function a bit like a kind of two-tier Christianity where a small minority doing ministry work are doing stuff of eternal value and everybody else's work is kind of trivial. Actually, it's a sort of Protestant version of the Roman Catholic priesthood. This is a serious error to think like this and it leads to some really big problems. It is a deeply unbiblical view of work. So today we're turning to the scriptures to seek God's wisdom about work, wisdom for work. Now, if you would turn to your handout, we're in this book of Proverbs, and we're just taking a few Proverbs uh, on this topic for the teaching today. And for those who've been following along with the series, I'm sure you've noticed that every time we open up a topic, we've looked at friendship, 
We've looked at words, listening, emotions. Every time we, we open up one of these topics, it's like we open a door. And when we look through the door, what do we see is a corridor with a lot more doors on it. Um, there's loads more we could say about work. I know that. But this is a start. Would you like to be a profound person? Would you like to live well in God's world? Then listen to the wisdom of Proverbs and read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it. Let's think about four points to do with work. Dignity, energy, reality, integrity. Dignity, energy, reality, integrity. Firstly, dignity on the left hand of this sheet. Proverbs 27, 18 says, The one who guards a fig tree will eat its fruit, and whoever protects their master will be honored. Now just think about this as a career choice. Whoever guards a fig tree. I don't know what guarding a fig tree would involve, but I imagine it's a fairly unexciting job. Fig trees, as far as I'm aware, don't have that much exciting going on with them. I don't know who would want to rob a fig tree that it needs to be guarded. I mean, maybe it's a way of guarding it from animals and pests that would go and eat the, the fruit. But, I mean, guarding a fig tree, you don't need a highly specialized uh, training or qualification for that, do you? It's not really a graduate job. And yet it says here, whoever guards a fig tree will eat its fruit. And then look at the second job. Whoever protects their master will be honored. Now, that's quite interesting. I think we tend to think of the superior person, the one who's higher up the food chain, will be the one that gets honored. But this says, no, the one that guards them, the bodyguard, the person who looks after, protects the, the, the interests of the master, will be honored. And honor is a great thing. Now, what is this proverb teaching? It's this. All work done well has dignity in the eyes of God. All work done well has dignity in the eyes of God, including guarding a fig tree or protecting someone more important. These aren't tasks that bring you lots of fame, glory, and money. They're not the kind of jobs that aspirational parents uh, aspire for for their highly educated and well-groomed offspring. Yet it says here, these are a cause for honor and for reward. In other words, your work matters to God whatever it is. Now we see the deep theological roots of this in the next two quotes, and here I've, I've gone out of Proverbs for a moment because the background of its thinking about work is the book of Genesis. Here are the foundations for how we understand work as Christians. Genesis 2, one of the, the two creation accounts that open the Bible, by the seventh day, now just listen to this, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, this is extraordinary. In the creation stories of the ancient world, they always had a bunch of gods, a plurality of gods, but these gods didn't do work. Work was considered an inferior pursuit, something kind of dirty, and grimy and to be avoided at all costs. So the gods created humans to do the work while they devoted themselves to leisure. And that was the uniform view of the ancient world. Fast forward a few hundred years, and in the world of Jesus and the early church, the Greco-Roman world, it was the same view. If you were wealthy, you didn't do a stitch of work. 
You had slaves for that and plenty of servants. But look at the Bible's version of reality. Our God works. He's a worker. In Genesis, he goes hard at his work for six solid days. And then he rests on the seventh. God creates the working week. He is a worker. And then notice what it says in the next verse about what God says to humans about work. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man, he's just created, and put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? Doss about and watch box sets and eat fruit? No, to work it and take care of it. Even when God first creates human beings, he intends work for them. Before what we call the fall, before it all went wrong, before sin entered the world, the man was created to work. The first man's job was to run a small holding called the Garden of Eden. We might say that Adam was a small farmer. Now Genesis 3 teaches that work has been deeply affected by the fall. We now eat our food by the sweat of our brow and thorns and thistles curse the ground. It's a vivid way of saying that work is difficult, stressful, hard, blighted. But that doesn't take away from the simple fact that we were made to work by a worker God and all our work has dignity. In other words, your work matters to God whatever it is. And just remember that when you're changing a nappy tomorrow morning or cooking yet another meal or getting ready to teach a horde of students or dealing with a difficult client or customer on the end of the phone or standing behind a shop counter. Your work matters to God. Let me ask you a question. Do you tend to undervalue some kinds of work compared to others? You know, you think those are the really important jobs, but this kind of work isn't that important. Do you despise your work or that of other people because you think it's unskilled or low paid? You shouldn't. All work matters to God, including guarding a fig tree, because all work is loving your neighbor. All work is loving your neighbor. One of the greatest thinkers on this was the German Protestant reformer. He was a monk who became a reformer and a great theologian called Martin Luther. Martin Luther said this, God gives us grace, not so that we can walk all over it, as the world does, but because God takes an interest in all that we do to our neighbors, good and bad, as though we were doing it to God. If only everyone would regard his service to his neighbors as service to God, the whole world would be filled with worship. Listen to the work he identifies. A servant in the stable, a maid in the kitchen, a child in school. These are merely God's workers and God's servants. If they with diligence do what their father and mother or lord and lady of the household gives them to do. Thus would every house be full of worship. Indeed, every house would be a true church in which nothing other than worship was practiced. Luther talks about our work as being like God's hands and feet in the world. Now, God doesn't need us to accomplish his purposes. God doesn't need farmers to grow crops and and bakers to bake bread. God can cause bread to come from the sky. But he uses farmers, bakers, 
and shops that sell bread in order to put it on our table. God has set the world up like that so that we would work and be his hands and feet in the world. He allows us to be his agents. Can you see how, how privileged it is to be able to do something useful because it loves your neighbor? Now, therefore, whatever it is, your work is worthy of your finest efforts and your most diligent application of your energy. And that's the second point here. Look at these next Proverbs, chapter 12, verse 24. Diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in forced labor. All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. The appetite of laborers works for them. Their hunger drives them on. What are these texts teaching? I'll take that last one first. The appetite of laborers works for them. Their hunger drives them on. You know, this is saying that just at one level, we simply need to work in order to eat. Hard work is driven by the need to survive. For most people, in most of the world, throughout most of history, if you don't work, you won't eat. Survival is a good reason to get a job, isn't it? As Christians, we should take the opportunity to work seriously, even if it's not the job we'd really like, the dream job. Now, if you're unable to work because of ill health, or infirmity, or because of your role as a carer, or genuinely being unable to find work, we are very fortunate in this country to have such a generous welfare state. But a Christian who understands the value of work shouldn't see being on job seekers' allowance as an alternative career choice. It is a temporary measure, a job seekers' allowance, intended to be short-term before you get back on your feet. Second text there, chapter 14, 23, hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Notice there the difference between hard work and mere talk. Generally speaking, hard work brings a profit. That's how most people who achieve great prosperity got there. They worked hard. And here's the thing. In the Bible, there's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with wealth. Some of the greatest saints in the Bible, some of the people who are, are most filled with faith, were really rich. Abraham, Job, King David, King Solomon, and in the New Testament, Lydia, the businesswoman. These were rich people. The question is not about whether you're rich or not, but what you do with your money and what you put your trust in. But notice here that mere talk doesn't make money. Some people are prone to dreaming dreams, having big ideas, doing loads of internet research, coming up with schemes and plans, and never actually doing anything. At the end of it all, you realize it was basically procrastination. And I used to procrastinate. I just can't get around to it anymore. Thank you. Next text, chapter 12, verse 24. Diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in forced labor. Now, this tells us what hard work looks like. It requires energy because it's diligent. Diligent hands means a person who is careful and conscientious about their work. They take care to do it as well as they can. Now, this kind of person is a delight to work with. They're a delight to employ. They're a delight to have as a boss. If they say they're going to do something, they don't need to be constantly reminded. They make sure it gets done. They think around the task. They don't just do the mere minimum, but they actually complete the meaning of the task, the whole job. 
Such people try and be on time and on budget. They clear up after themselves. They're a pleasure to work with. They do a job better than it was done before. That's diligence. Now, according to Proverbs, such a person often ends up ruling. Diligent hands will rule. In other words, they go up the ladder to management because they're trustworthy. People trust a diligent worker with greater and greater responsibility. We have this um, poster child of this in the Bible is a guy called Joseph who is in the book of Genesis. You remember the Technicolor dream coat. Joseph starts his career looking after a few sheep for his dad. His brothers don't like him. He gets sold into slavery. But even when he's a slave, he's so good at running the household of a rich man, he ends up being promoted to the top job. And then somebody mistreats him again. He's, he's put in prison, but he's in the prison. He's so diligent that he ends up being trusted to run the prison. And there, if you've read the story, you'll know because of God's grace to him and through the dreams that he was able to interpret, he ends up being the number two, the CEO of Egypt, the number two to Pharaoh himself, because he was diligent. He ruled. Now, the opposite is true of the lazy person. He or she doesn't take initiative to find work, so they end up doing work that they're forced to do. Look what it says. Laziness ends in forced labor. Because they were lazy, they end up doing something awful and never wanted to do that. Now, many years ago, I worked in an office where another Christian worked, she arrived at work every morning and went to a desk. And underneath the desk was a pair of slippers. She took off the work shoes and put the slippers on and started to relax. One day, a non-Christian colleague whispered to me, everyone knows she doesn't do any work. And it was true. Now, I've got to ask you a question if you're a Christian here. Would those who work with you say you are diligent? Because we ought to be. Now that question leads us to the next piece of wisdom about work, which is we do need to be realistic about it. We need a dose of hard-nosed, clear-headed realism. Christians can be so heavenly-minded that they are of no earthly use. Some Christians in their passion for Jesus and their desire to witness have become offensive to their employers because they don't do what they're paid to do. Some students who've been so zealous about Christian work and being in the CU and so on have neglected their coursework. Some have even made that a virtue. But that's not actually honoring God. We must take care to be realistic. If you look at the right-hand sheet, the third point is reality. Reality. Look at chapter 27, verse 23 to 24. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds, for riches do not endure forever, and a crown is not secure for all generations. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds. I've been reading a book this week called The Fat of the Land. It's a true story of John and Sally Seymour, who in the late 1950s decided they were going to try and become self-sufficient. They were going to grow all their own food and kind of plug out of the industrial mercantile society. And they got five acres of land down in Suffolk and they started to live off it. And the book is hilarious and very informative. Um, I'm going to try this experiment in West Didsbury. I'll let you know how we get on. Now the Seymours start out with ducks, geese and chickens and then they branch out to pigs and eventually even a cow. They plant many different varieties of crops and they see some of them succeed and others fail. And what you realize as the story goes on 
is how the success of such an endeavor is totally related to knowing what is going on at any time. They had to spot what the animals were eating and what they weren't eating. They had to spot if an animal was sick or healthy at any moment. If a farmer doesn't pay close attention to his flocks and herds, he may miss crucial signs that things are going wrong and whole herds can be devastated as a result. Proverbs says, be sure to know the condition of your flocks. Now, there are not many farmers at Grace Church, right? What's the principle? Here it is. What might make us not know what was going on in our work? What might make us not aware of what's going on in our own work? Here's one thing. Over-delegation. You delegate a task out, but you don't take care that the person knows what they're doing, is coached in what they're doing, and is actually doing it. A failure to manage people. Secondly, just being neglectful of the details. Can't the details be boring? Most jobs actually involve quite a lot of tedium. And so we can become neglectful, but that's like neglecting your flocks. Inattentiveness. We're in a hyper-distracted age. Our generation, particularly the last 10, 15 years, has become hyper-distracted. But if we don't give 100% attention to our work, things will slip through. And of course, we're in an ever-changing world, an ever-changing marketplace, an ever-changing environment. Just not keeping up with the changes can be the equivalent of neglecting your flocks. And the warning comes in the next verse. Riches don't endure forever. Even a crown is not secure for all generations. We have to stay on the ball. We have to keep aware of what's happening. Let's be realistic. And the next verse draws attention to one detail of work that we neglect at our peril. It is recruitment. I say this as a former recruiter. Look at chapter 26, verse 10. Like an archer who wounds at random is one who hires a fool or any passerby. Now, just imagine a culture where, in warfare, the archer was a key person in terms of winning the battle. You know, the the bow at one point in history was such advanced technology, you could win a battle just by having archers. The famous Battle of Agincourt, I say this as a proud Englishman, was where a small English force defeated a much larger French army simply because of their bows. But look at the archer who is depicted here. He wounds at random. So here we are, we're all getting ready, we're all tense, we're ready for the fight. It's like the beginning of Gladiator. Archers, get your bows ready, and we pull them back. They've got like fire on the end, you know, so we can blow stuff up. And then one guy just, just kind of gets distracted and shoots someone in the foot, or, or, or shoots a horse, and everything goes to pot. An archer who wounds at random. It says here, that's what it's like if you hire a fool. Ever employed a fool? Now, a fool in Proverbs is not someone unintelligent. It's not about intelligence. It's someone who is morally deficient, but very wise in their own eyes. They they tend to to make bad moral choices, but they won't listen to wisdom and instruction because they're full of pride and they think they know best. And therefore, they constantly make bad decision after bad decision, and they create chaos in their own lives and in the lives of people around them. 
it is impossible to correct them. They blunder through life. Now, here's the thing. There's a fool inside every one of us. (laughs) There's a fool inside every one of us trying to get out. We're all a mixture of wisdom and folly. That's why the book was written. Because we need the cool, calm voice of, of Solomon and the other sages in Proverbs so that we're not fools and so that we become profound people. It would be madness to hire someone who was a fool because they're just going to be a nightmare. Just like it would be madness to hire a random passerby. We've got an important job going in the school or in the company or in, in the university. Uh, who should we get? Get that person who just walked by and bring them in. You've got the job. It would be madness. So let me ask a question again. In your work, are you painstaking, careful, and diligent about it? What would your colleagues say? What would your boss say? If you're a student, what would your tutor or the professor say? And are there areas of work that you know right now, you're doing carelessly, then it's time to change. Because fourthly and finally, how we work is a matter of our integrity. How we work is a matter of our integrity. And it's no surprise that integrity matters to God. Would you look at point four? Chapter 11, verse one. The Lord detests dishonest scales, but accurate weights find favor with him. The Lord detests dishonest scales. Uh, It's the end of the summer this week. My wife and I have been privileged to have some good holidays. I have not been on a diet since June. I've been eating what I pleased, including crisps and other savory snacks, after 9 p.m. I've not really paid much attention to calories or even exercise. And so this week, I got out of the bathroom scales had to pluck up my courage a bit. Did it first thing in the morning. You know, supposed to be lighter then. I got the scales out. And we have this wonderful set of scales that Melissa's hidden in the, in the house. That is a digital display that not only tells you how much you weigh, but your f- body mass index and how fat you are. And then it tells you how many calories you're supposed to eat that day. It's a, it's a fearful contrivance, this set of scales. So I took it out and uh, took a deep breath and stood on the scales, and to my delight, I mean, absolute delight after that summer, I was half a stone lighter than I was at the start. And I thought, thank you, Lord. The world is a good place. That such a miracle could occur to one such as me. That after a, a, a summer of indulgence, I could have lost half a stone. And then I looked down at the scales again, and I saw that it had a setting on the side that said person three. Person three is 18 years old, and five foot ten. Person three is my son. So I'd got off the scales, reset it to person two, who is 48 years old and five foot nine. And it added on five pounds. So I was absolutely, well, that's realism, isn't it? Well, I said to my wife, you know what? The Lord detests these scales. They lied to me the first time I got on them. Why would it be a different weight for Will than me? I don't understand it. Now you get what it's saying. Now in the ancient world, people bought stuff and literally they would go and and order some grain or some 
crops or whatever it was, and the person who was selling it would weigh it out on some actual scales. And on one side of the scales would be the thing that they're buying, and on the other side would be some weights. And you know, they put, how much do you want? I want um, so many shekels worth. Okay, and they put them on. Now here's the interesting thing. Archaeologists have found, excavating in the, in the Near East, loads of these different weights and different measures of, of things. But the curious thing is that they're all different. <laughs> the weights are different. They can't find what the standard was. And here's why. People used to make them a little bit different. So that we say it's two shekels, but actually it doesn't weigh that much to try and get a bit more out of the person. It was a way of defrauding the buyer. So dishonest scales refers to any dishonest practice in work misrepresenting things to customers in order to make them buy it, misleading clients about the progress of an assignment, uh, teachers cheating the exam system by helping students write essays that the student couldn't have written on their own. Of course, the teacher comes out with great results. Students at school or university who plagiarize. Friends, those are dishonest scales and it says here that the Lord detests them. I hope you didn't drop that because you were so deeply convicted. Now let me just move on to chapter 20, verse 17, and see, see the kind of outcome of this. Food gained by fraud tastes sweet. It's quite nice to get something for free, but one ends up with a mouthful of gravel. There's a warning about dishonesty here. In the short term, you might gain by lying, actually. You might gain. But the gain is short-lived. Such gain, such food, is, it tastes sweet at first. But in the end, it's like you just took a mouthful of gravel. It will not satisfy. It will leave a bad taste. It'll give you a nagging conscience. You'll probably get found out at some point. I went to an American seminary. We were required to take 30 courses to get the degree program called a Master of Divinity. 30 courses, and they work you hard in the United States. One student took 28 of his required courses and then got a job as a pastor somewhere else in the States. He finished his last two courses uh, by distance learning and sent in the, the paperwork. And then there was a long silence. He got his degree, got a good degree, and carried on his work as a pastor. And then a few years later... He wrote to his professor and he said, I've just been preaching on dishonesty and I was convicted by God and I have to tell you that I plagiarized some essays in those last two courses. I was under pressure, uh, we, I, I didn't have time, so I, I copied someone else's work and I'm really sorry. And the professor said, to his credit, well, thank you for confessing that. And it's good that you've come clean. But I'm afraid I have to refer you to the authorities of the seminary, which he did. And by the rules of the institution, he was stripped of his degree. Three years of hard work were gone because of a few copied paragraphs. It might have tasted sweet, but he ended up with a mouthful of gravel. Now, you may know that you've cheated on something. It might be a business deal. It might be something to do with your educational career. It might be something in, in, in the hospital where you work. You, you may know you've cheated. And let me just say, God knows too. 
So is there something in your work that needs to be put right now so that you are honest and you can move on in integrity? Where is it in your work that you're under pressure? And you know what? I know you're all under pressure to, to, be, to be dishonest, to compromise, to make some small compromise. Where is it? Final two proverbs. A tyrannical ruler practices extortion, but one who hates ill-gotten gain will enjoy a long reign. And the stingy are eager to get rich and unaware that poverty awaits them. There are two things here that look kind of opposite. One is a person who is actively extorting and screwing down other people to get money out of them. And the Bible has a lot to say about this kind of practice, especially uh, screwing down the poor and extracting money from them. The poor are often defenseless. They've got no one to be their voice and their champion. They don't know the system. The poorer people in this country pay more tax than the very rich. And the Bible says a tyrannical ruler practices extortion. A A tyrant. It's a terrible thing. And then the other person here, it looks kind of opposite. It's just someone who's very withholding, stingy. You know, this kind of person, they never step forward and offer to buy a round. You, you take them for coffee, you always end up paying for the coffee. They're counting the pennies. It's not just about being careful. They just, they, they can't let money go. And it says here that the reason they're stingy is they're eager to get rich. Funny enough, some of the richest people I've known have also been some of the stingiest. But it says here they're unaware that poverty awaits them. What's the, the, the thing that unites the extorter and the, and the Scrooge? Is that both of them have let money and the desire to get rich distort their behavior so that they've forgotten to love their neighbor. The tyrant doesn't love his neighbor and neither does the stingy person. They're using their neighbor to enrich themselves. Work. Looks like the Bible has quite a lot to say about it. It has great dignity. It requires great energy. It needs to be approached with reality. And we must seek and pursue integrity. And as we close this message, let me just point us not to our own work or even to our own career, but to the career of somebody else, the career of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you just think about Jesus' CV? His first job was the creator of the universe. John 1 says that through him, God made all things. Jesus is the agent of creation. And then he took a considerable pay cut and a considerable step down to become a carpenter. You know, Jesus didn't go to high school, certainly didn't make it to university. He probably had good primary education and then he learned a trade from his uh, earthly father, Joseph, who was the village carpenter. Uh, uh, Some scholars think that carpenter there is a bit broader. It involves things like stonework as well. It may have been a handyman. And Jesus, as a teenager, as a boy, followed Joseph around, watched him, copied him, learned a trade. Jesus would have had working man's hands, strong hands, full of calluses, because he was a worker until he was 30 years old. And what must his workmanship have been like? Isn't it interesting? Jesus' second job was putting people's houses right. And he's been doing it ever since. 
But then he put, put aside his tools and took up another role, a traveling teacher, a rabbi, a preacher, going around the countryside teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God and doing great wonders. But that wasn't his ultimate job. Because the greatest job, the greatest work that Jesus Christ had come to do was to die on a cross, a cruel Roman torture instrument. Jesus regarded it as his life's work. And on the cross, as he endured not just great physical suffering and not just intense shame and disgrace, but above all, the the separation and judgment of God pouring out his wrath on him, Jesus eventually cried out, it is finished. He finished the work he'd come to do. Because in his cross work, Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, became the one who redeemed a people for himself that nobody can number. And many of you are here belonging to him. That's the career of Jesus Christ. He went from heaven to earth from the earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave. But from the grave, he went back to heaven. So when you're bored this week, when you're just fed up of changing yet another nappy, when you're tempted, you're tempted to cut corners, to shade the truth, to be dishonest, when you're just tempted to be lazy because work is so irritating, or you're tempted to be neglectful, can I ask you to think about the work of your saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, and think about what he endured for your sake, what he finished to bring you in. And that, I think, will inspire you to work for the Lord Jesus Christ. Apostle Paul put, put it like this when he was writing to some slaves. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Jesus, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether you are slave or free. May God give us that grace to be people who work like that this week. Shall we pray?